Well, tonight uh, I'm looking at something uh, this week. I don't know if you're aware, every two years, Ligonier Ministries, which was the ministry founded by Dr. R.C. Sproul, who's now gone on to heaven, uh, does a theological survey in the church and in the world, and they take the theological temperature in America, and they do a survey. They, they just completed theirs for 2020, and uh, there's some surprising findings. If you've never watched, looked at this survey before, some surprising findings that we have within the church. And I thought it might be a good idea to kind of go through that with you and show it to you. And maybe you can answer some of these questions that are asked and see where you stack up theologically with what it does. Uh, there at the beginning, you say it says, what do Americans think about Jesus Christ, the Bible, truth, and ethics? Ligonier Ministries State of Theology Survey provides insights every two years. We take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and equip the church with better insights and discipleships. So before we have uh, us, the, if scroll down just a little bit, the first one is, who is Jesus, is the question that they ask. Um, and... The, the statement there, it looks like, is Jesus was a great teacher. Let's see, scroll down just a little bit more. There you go. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And we see the findings there in that, in that 52% uh, agreed, 36% disagreed. So 52% agreed, yeah, he's a great teacher, but he's not God. And that is in the survey. And there's the breakdown of strongly somewhat. Yeah, and then there's the breakdown in there. And you go to ligonair.org to get into all this if you want to get down to it. So, um, of course, I don't think there's anyone in this room who disagrees or would say that Jesus is not God. That, that, let me say one thing about that. It, it, it is so true in, in, in gospel preaching, especially. That is one of the absolute things when you talk about preaching the gospel, especially, and you can look at this survey for evidence that absolutely must be made clear in gospel preaching is that Jesus is God. Because so many people don't believe that. So many, sometimes people don't even think of Jesus that way. They, they've never even considered the fact whether or not he is God. And let me tell you, as you know well, you can cut everything off right there at the pass as far as what Christianity is. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, period. I mean, that's one of the absolutes that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. And sadly, 52% in this survey said they agreed that he was a great teacher, but was not God. Anything you want to add to that, Mark? Making sure I understand this. This is when he says 52%. This is 52% versus 36 of U.S. adult respondents. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then when he goes down here, he's going to do evangelical respondents, right. Let's see which is going is. to be a different kind of finding, 52 right. verse 36. Now, look at that. So is that shocking to you? It should be. So 30 agree that he was not God. 30% evangelicals. Of evangelicals. Yes. Not just the folks. 30%. And look at the breakdown right there. 26% uh, strongly agree. Agree. 
In other words, no, no, no. I think they, it agrees because Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not. Not God. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. How they define what evangelical? I'd have to look. I think you could probably go deeper down into this survey and find out. I'm sure it's probably just a, probably, a, if I had to guess, kind of a hodgepodge across the Anything board. not Catholic. Yeah, anything not I mean, Catholic. That, that yeah. Yeah. And of course, the term evangelical has just been ripped to shreds as to what the original uh, meaning of it. But that is that is a shocking number, don't you think? Even the ones, even the ones that are not sure are strongly disagree. Yeah, right. Slightly disagree. Slightly agree. And it should be no question. There's nothing you can waver on that. How are you not sure? And you know what happens is when you belong to a sound doctrine, doctrine church that is big on expositional preaching and sound doctrine, and we come together every Sunday, and we're digging down into the Word, we're digging down into not just every verse, but every word in every verse. We're breaking things down, and we're we're coming from a theological foundation underneath uh, the exposition of the word, and and that's that's where we live. That's our that's our church culture, and we can lose sight of the fact because this is where we live. That outside in all so many other churches, this is what you got. And what do you think is the the biggest reason that would lead thirty percent in the evangelical survey? What would you say is the biggest reason for why you got that big of a number? That's my question. Ignorance, 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 ignorance. Well, no, they, they wouldn't be considered as evangelical. Yeah. Mormons are not evangelical. No. No. What's Any kind of Protestant, non-Catholic, uh, across the spectrum, non-denominational, uh, Baptist, in anything across that spectrum. Or they're considered cults. Yeah. I think it's like how they are not reading for yourself, but the teaching also, what are they being taught? Right. Right. So why would they say that? Why would 30% take it, take up that position? Into the world, like, what they don't know the Mormon considered so Christian, they all know that. Is that not the case? Yeah, there would be. When Lee Mears take this survey, they can they're not. They're not polling Mormons. They're not polling Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not polling Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics. They're not polling those three groups. Yeah, you're right, Daryl. They would. Yeah. They would. We saw that when Mitt Romney ran for president, right? Yeah. They're not Ligonier. They're not the media. Yeah. So they're, they're they know who they're targeting. So. Non-Mormon, non-Catholic, non-Jehovah's Witness. Either people who claim to be evangelical like us. So 30% would say Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Why would they, I mean, where would they get that? If you told, you went and interviewed them and say, okay, you're one of the 30%. Why do you believe that? What do you think they would say? Exactly right. I mean, it, it's more personal and it's more, they don't mind Jesus being a great teacher, but when you put him in the God category, that means he's got authority over me. And I ain't going to have Jesus having a thought because I know what Jesus says. And he's going to say some things that's going to cramp my life out. It's all, it's all to protect their sin pattern. Remember, and now if we took this 
you know, maybe poll to the, to the Mormons or to the Aryans or whatever else out there that, you know, believe they will give you some sort of scripture or they would give you some new world translation from, you know, some theological reason, but not this. This is because if you, you dig down a little bit, somebody's protecting a sinful lifestyle and Jesus is God. <laughs> this is no room for, for me to squirm. I mean, I gotta, I gotta, you know, he's God, then he's authoritative. Like it says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And that's where they're going to push back. And if he wasn't God, he'd get no authority. Hey, I mean, he's a great guy. I mean, hey, maybe if he was here, we'd go get a beer together, you know. But they don't like him being God. Because when you're God, I mean, you carry all the authority of heaven and hell. And they, they don't like that stuff. He's the CNN Jesus. Every Easter, you know, finding Jesus. They're still looking for him. And every time you get this. But in line with that, too, though, I think that uh, when you look across the spectrum of the core of what's being taught and preached in a lot of these evangelical uh, churches, all you got to do is go on the internet and, and see. I remember <laughs> uh, when we were in the COVID time and we were doing our, uh, our thing and, uh, I forget what was it. I, I happened. I was home on a Sunday morning for some reason. I think it was when it first started or whatever. So I, I pulled up Facebook, and I think it was before we were supposed to start. That's what it was. It was before we were supposed to start our thing or whatever it was. I was home. I'm never home at that time on Sunday, right? So I pull it up, and there's a local pastor in a full superman suit preaching in a superman suit like with the muscle things and i'm like that's where he got it from. i loaned it to somebody and then i started listening <laughs> and it's it's like wow this is not even christianity this is this is self-help this is dr phil and oprah with some bible words yeah that's what it is and so you have that being taught and being presented in so many of these quote-unquote evangelical churches that the people now look the people have a responsibility as well right the study to show yourselves approved unto god right a workman need not be ashamed they have a responsibility, but who has the bigger responsibility? The pastors do as to what they're teaching and what they're presenting as biblical Christianity. So there's fault both ways. And I think if, if that's all you're getting when you go to church and you get a question like this, well, I don't know. Uh, well, he wasn't very honest about God. Well, know? if this was Catholic, I'd, I'd say, well, that's probably generous. I mean, but... Because they're not taught the Bible. The evangelicals taught the Bible. Here's the problem, though. You can teach something and not believe it yourself. So it starts with the leadership. It starts at the top. You can preach something about Jesus says this or Jesus says that and nice little stories and stuff. But when you actually go to apply it and press the buttons to say, now this is what you are expected to conform to and you're expected to get rid of and you're expected to embrace this, and the church won't tolerate if you don't change your behavior and you'll be excommunicated. Well, now that's a different structure of a church that's going to put teeth behind the words of Jesus. 
but he just sees Jesus and nice little stories and Jesus receives the children and kisses babies and kind of like a politician all the time. And you teach in the Bible kind of thing, but you teach it in such a way that Jesus is defanged. I mean, he has right. no authority. He's got no real power. And you can teach it in such a way that people walk away. And, you know, it's kind of like we talked about many times that, you know, everybody always likes to go to church at Christmas. You know why? Because a baby in a manger isn't threatened. Right. That's right. But a uh, risen savior on the throne, great white throne before, and has people come before him for judgment. That's a different kind of Jesus. And even more, you know, deal with that Jesus. But babies in mangers are cute and things of that sort. And so they're non-threatening. And you can present Jesus in a very non-threatening way. You can preach it in such a way by leaving certain things out so that when people leave, you get 30% to say he's a great teacher, but he's not God. So. What else we got? The next one, I think it's plan of salvation. So God chose the people he would say before he created the world. Wow. So, oh, y'all are looking at it. Don't forget, y'all are looking at it. Now, this, don't forget, this is just U.S. adult respondents here. Um, hey, I, I, better? <laughs> yeah, we're kind of we're getting over here. So I can't believe twenty six percent agree. I find that surprising. Let's figure this out a little bit. Let's see what it says here. So now we're getting to the evangelicals. So I'm being God salvation. As you can see in the paragraph below that. And that's not surprising. The influence of Arminian theology remains strong in evangelical churches. So 44 disagree with that statement. But that's not surprising, is it? I but, wouldn't think. But once again, these are evangelicals. Can't got to leave out. These are people like us, quote unquote. We're supposed to be in the same category with these people. No, no, they, that's a broad statement. He would say before he created the world. I think, maybe perhaps, that includes those who would say that God goes down to the future time to see who would believe in the will, and then he chose them on that basis. That that, that doesn't have a whole lot of of framework around it. A little more specificity. You don't have a vernacular here as far as what that may mean. And maybe that's where you get the strongly and somewhat breakdowns, where you might get that distinction between those two. Columns, so. But I mean, there's no question that Arminian theology is the majority report in in the church in America for sure. Uh, so that one. 28 and 32. I mean, as far as strongly concerned, it's pretty easy. Hey, well, yeah. Learning about God. Theology is the study of God. While many people deny basic tenets of the Christian faith, it may be the case that they still desire to have some understanding of who God is, even if it is their own self-constructed theology apart from biblical revelation, particularly with the fears and concerns occasioned by COVID-19, people may now be given more thought to ultimate matters of eternal significance. Learning about theology is for pastors and scholars only. Bring it back. That's the adult population uh, in 2020. 15% agree with that. And I think they have, I think you can go more in depth 
and look at the past surveys to see how it changed because probably COVID did have an effect on that. And you even have more. Wasn't that 50 that it was for pastors only? Is that what it's saying, or am I right? Right. Disagree that it was for pastors only. Right, 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 right. That's right. So you add them up. But it's even higher when it comes to evangelicals. Remember the little dot there right here where he says evangelical respondents even have a higher disagree that it's for pastors and scholars only. They believe it's for everybody. So that means you have lower degree. Correct. Although a significant percentage of the U.S. population concedes that the knowledge of God has a place in the lives of everyday people, not just scholars. That's a good thing. Our survey data suggests a great need for teaching that is grounded in the historic Christian faith and based in the truth of the Bible. And one of the one of the yeah yeah right 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 one of the uh, the, the hallmarks of, of Reformed theology though is a robust uh, study of and understanding of the attributes of God. I will never forget. I was preaching at a Southern Baptist church uh, before I was at Providence in Baton Rouge. And it was an older congregation. And the very first thing that I did before I started my study of Matthew uh, verse by verse on Sunday mornings is I took the church through the major attributes of God. And uh, I, I'll never forget, there was an old lady named Miss Virginia. She was like in her 80s. She'd been... Baptist all her life and she came to greet me at the door on the way out and she was crying she said I've been going to church for over 80 years and she said I've never heard anything like that preached about God and I thought how sad it is and 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 for myself uh, before I came to the doctrines of grace and my time before I came to the Doctrines of Grace, the churches that I attended, I never heard anything about the attributes of God until I came to Reformed Theology. And it's so critically important that you go through, there are many good books that you can go through, theological books to study the attributes of God. It's one of, the, one of my favorite studies is to study the attributes. I think he gets into trends right here. Uh, revealing, as it says in yellow, I put here, profound unfamiliarity with core teachings of Christian orthodoxy and a confusion about the objective nature of truth. Trends in this direction, like, for example, the Bible. The most consistent and concerning trend is the increasing rejection of the literal truth of Scripture among the U.S. population. The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is clear from the Bible itself. And it gives you three texts that you can look up and is affirmed by the historic Reformed confessions of the 16th and 17th century. So they put out a question here. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Do you agree it's not literally true? Or you disagree and think it is literally true? It's grown each year, starting back in, uh, if you go down, Starting in 14, they give you some comparisons there. 41, 44, 47, 48. So it's increasing. Yeah. It's increasing.
when I was preaching about that this Sunday, I asked, you know, you talk to people, do you believe the Bible's inspired? Oh, yeah. Well, do you believe it's completely without error? Well, no, I don't believe that. Really? Think about that. Right. Exactly. If it's really inspired by God, how is it possible that it could have error in it? If God's the one that inspired it. Now, this is a little different than the Bible question. This is a question concerning truth. Majority of U.S. adults assume that all truth is relative. More than half of respondents to the State of Theology survey say that religious belief is not about objective reality. Now think about that. However, fewer people express this view in 2020 than in 2018. It isn't clear why this is the case, but it may, but it may be that our chaotic cultural moment has prompted more people to turn to religion for objective truth. That's pretty interesting. So, statement so went decreased between 18 and 20. So the, the question or the point, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. We all know it is about objective truth. So if you say, yeah, you're right, it's not about objective truth, agreeing with the statement would say in 2018, 60% agreed it's not about an objective truth. It's more personal. But in 2020, it went down. Once again, we're in the section on trends. It says the latest survey shows a decline in the number of profession evangelicals who have an accurate understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. Statement is the Holy Spirit gives a person a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. 62% agreed in 2016, 57 agree in 2020. That's interesting to me uh, because you have two clear definite differences between uh, basic reform theology, the regeneration preceding faith, or Regeneration being a result of faith on the Arminian side, that it decreased. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Other trends are more encouraging. Growing acceptance of the authority and trustworthiness of the Bible among evangelical Christians. Uh, since God is the perfect author of creation and of Scripture, there can be no conflict between Bible and science. Modern science disproves the Bible. You agree or disagree? In 2018, 25% agree, 2020, 17% agree. Which then if you strongly disagree, obviously, you don't hold to that. That's heading in the right direction. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> now this has to do with the nature of man. We always get some good stuff here. Another positive trend among U.S. evangelicals is falling support for the idea that people are good by nature, an idea that cannot be reconciled with the emphatic teaching of the Bible that all people are sinners in need of salvation. So the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Maybe they were disagreeing with the first part of your song, the assertion that everybody sins a lot. Maybe. So they were disagreeing with the first part. Yeah, right. You're going to get this inconsistency. You can see it, right. Right. You would think. Right. 
And look, anybody on Zoom want to comment? Just jump in. Okay, we just. Yes. Martin Luther I said, I think it was Martin. I think it was Martin Luther that said that in the bondage of the will, that everything hinges on how you view the bondage of that will in man. Is he in bondage to sin or is he kind of sort of and you know can sin a little but can also do some good? Most people would say, yeah, that one. Yeah, because I've seen some people do some good, so guess what? Then they can do some good. They make themselves the reference point to start with because they see somebody do something good. They transfer that to God and say, well, God sees them doing something good too because if I can see it doing them doing something good, then God's saying they are doing something good. And they make themselves the reference for that, and they make it also for God. Well, God comes in in his revelation and says, no. I don't see any good in men. There's none that, that do good. No, not one. Now, now you've got a conflict here. Like, well, wait a minute. You're saying they don't do anything good. I'm saying them do something good. Me and you had an impasse. That's exactly right. And so that's the whole point with Erasmus and Luther and that big debate that man cannot do anything good in the sight of God when it comes to God. Doesn't mean man can't do utilitarian things that are quote unquote good in the sense that useful or something to that effect. But if you think they're going to stand the test of the great white throne judgment and be classified as good simply because you call them good, <laughs> we got another thing coming. It ain't going to work that way. God isn't going to work off of your definitional dictionary. You've got to work off of his. Mm -hmm. And if we don't start with his, kind of going back to these basics, you see, then every man's going to do what's right in his own eyes. Every man's going to define what he's going to define in his own eyes. Every man's going to size it up and ship it off or call it gold or call it trash or whatever in his own eyes. And if you do that, then every man becomes their own God. Every man becomes their own law. Every man becomes their own edict and decrees. And every man becomes their own judge and jury. And when people die, that's the first thing they realize is, you know something? I don't think I'm going to be able to weigh in on my, on the verdict that's going to be passed on me. You think, yep, it's going to be done by somebody else and their rules and their laws their verdict, not mine. Back, back in 1970, I, I was teaching elementary school, but my first year in Judah, uh, down in Terrell Parish. Actually, I was teaching the second grade. So the first day of class, I introduced myself with the name of the Lord, and I said, we are not going to have any rules in this class. I'm not going to make, I'm not, I'm not going to make any rules. Well, the kid just got so excited. So I'm not going to make any rules. However, I am going to state two principles. Principle number one, we treat every person 
with respect and dignity. Principle number two, we maintain an atmosphere for learning. That's the only, that's, that's going to be my guidelines. However, <clears throat> if your behavior violates those two principles, that's when we had blackboards. I said, this board over here, if you violate either one of these principles individually, then we're going to make a rule and we're going to name it after you. And I said, for example, you can run in the hall, you can chew gum, you can do whatever you want to. But if it doesn't respect your fellow students and it does not maintain an atmosphere for learning, then we're going to apply a rule to it. So I said, it wasn't very long, but one boy put gum in the little girl's hair. So the rule is no gum in the classroom. <laughs> so when somebody says, can I chew gum, I'll say, ask out. And before very long, I didn't have enough blackboard. <laughs> I knew when I did that, that they were going to break the rules. Part of what I was trying to teach them is that our being prisoners of the rules is dictated by the worst part of our nation. And before it was over with, nobody had any fun in my class. <laughs> and the law is for an unrighteous man. It's right. not made for a righteous man. Because the righteous man in your class would say, hey, I'm here to learn. I'm here to help everybody else do the same. <laughs> I'm the law. I know what I'm here for. I know what he wants from me. I'm good to go. But, but, but you know. <laughs> I, I knew about the crap. <laughs> I can tell you, if you want to do engage in a little experiment, as to whether or not man is good by nature, just come spend a Saturday afternoon with me and my one and a half year old grandson. Because I can tell you, when he doesn't get his way, he gets so angry. I've told my church this before, that if at that moment somehow he could get to full grown, like be zapped into full grown with a knife, he'd slit your throat in a heartbeat. <laughs> I can promise you. It's unquestionable. The evidence is very, very clear. Now, this is how the sin question fits into this question. Because in yellow, how sinful man can be justified in the sight of God? If you give a less than biblical answer to how bondage your will is, then you will give less of an impetus to be justified by free and sovereign grace through faith. When he's bringing out here. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. And you see that in 2018, you had 91% of the evangelicals agreed with that, and it's dropped off by 7% points, which basically means that they don't believe in that 7%. And so, um, once again, it's not just something stuck out there. You ask them this question. This will ride on the back of how people see themselves in the sight of God. If you see yourself as kind of, well, yeah, you know, me and God got something worked out, or I just got to be better at what I'm doing. I got to be a better religious person. Or, I mean, then you're assuming you've got some good merits about yourself that God really likes. And you're not really totally bankrupt and totally uh, despicable in his sight. Because if you got to that stage, wow, heaven 
forbid. I mean, you might have to actually go before God and throw yourself on the mercy of the court and ask him to save you because you would see yourself then as completely done away. But that's the whole point. If you don't start with that, then you're never going to get to this spot where uh, you're going to need a savior who's going to give you a perfect righteousness. Inside. So they go together. So it's not just segmented piece of a puzzle of theology here and a piece of a puzzle over here and one over here and this one over here. Because a lot of times, especially people in the pew, can think in terms of theological snippets and bits and sound bites. And I just got to remember this is true and then this over here is true and this is true. You got to see it together and see the big picture that you pull on this piece of the thread here, you're going to lose, it's going to unravel the whole garment. And they all fit together, especially these basic tenets, and especially this view of man and how sinful he is in the sight of God. Because, I mean, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person, the first thing he does is he bankrupts him in his sight, and he deprives him of all hope, and he despairs him of being able to stand before God on his own. If he doesn't do that, then trust me, you're going to have some sort of something that you think you can offer to God to get God to like you and to accept you and that's going to fight against this whole idea of needing another man's another man's righteousness and to be justified because of his righteousness so you got to understand that they fit together as a as a team okay any comments on zoom land Next statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Jude, Judaism, and Islam. In 2016, 46, excuse me, 48 percent of evangelicals agreed with that wow. statement. It's gone up in 2018 and it's dropped down in 2020. So 42 percent of this year evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That means Osama bin Laden's in heaven. Yeah. He just betrays an understanding of the gospel. And the previous question, too. So if somebody said that to you, there's a very good chance. It's a 42% chance. <laughs> if you're in the evangelical world, you might run across somebody like that. How would you respond to them? Besides just, uh, no, I disagree. I'm part of the group that disagrees. Oh, okay. Talk them up for the disagreeer. I mean, how do you witness to somebody like that? Read Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Yeah. It just depends on where else they fall earlier in the survey. Correct. Yeah, I mean, if they couldn't believe the Bible the standard, then we're going to go appeal to the scriptures. I mean, that's what I'm going to appeal to regardless of where they stand. Correct. I'm going to say, you know, yeah, it is. It's not what the Bible says. John 26, other verses, actually 12. Right. Um, but I think, you know, part of the problem in something like this is for a long, long time, we've used the expression, I think it's a uh, uh, an erroneous expression, but uh, Judeo-Christian ethic. Mm -hmm. We we use that a lot. The Judeo-Christian ethic. There is no such thing as Judeo-Christian. Uh, you know, Judaism is is a uh, is a heresy, just as Islam. 
And uh, we, we need to be able to, to make that stand. And it's, you can only do it through scripture. Yeah, I had a I had a, a, a guy who was a Messianic Jew come to a church I was previously pastoring, and uh, he was just so appealing to us and saying, "Where Armenian theology has, and and especially uh, dispensationalism has done," he said, "We don't have any evangelizing of in Israel." Please send us evangelists to preach the gospel in Israel. We don't have any. And his premise was because at so much of evangelicalism believed that, well, the Jews are God's chosen people, so they're okay. We don't have to evangelize. Which is sad. The unbiblical concept of relative truth has influenced every sphere of life in the United States, including the ethical issues that continue to be at the forefront of public debate. In 2020, a large percentage of U.S. evangelicals reject the arguments of gender fluidity. Gender fluidity means what? I don't want to use a phrase and expect everybody to understand what I'm talking about or what he's talking about. What's gender fluidity? You can look at, you can look at the question and it gives you the answer. Gender identity is the matter of choice. Okay. You can choose your gender. Well, wait a minute. Biologically, I think I I was told I'm this, or, you know, I have this as my, you know, (laughs) part of my, you know, um, my makeup. But they say you can choose to be the opposite or choose to be something different. I think there's like 56, the last count, of gender gender identities that you can actually choose from. Um, and of course, the Bible says male and female, he created them. Um, and so the question or the point is gender identity is a matter of choice. Now, that's what the culture believes. So when you put this same statement to evangelicals in 2020, one out of five appears to reject the Bible's teaching that our gender as male or female is given by God, our creator. And then somebody, I choose to be African Choose to be African American. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's a race. <laughs> but yeah, right, correct. Right. That's true. It seems like part of the problem there also is defining gender. Yeah. How do you define gender? And and that that's where again the you you've used the phrase about dictionary the uh, the, the battle of definitions, the battle of the dictionaries, and we have a dictionary. It's God's word. And the idea of what they've done there is they're um, making gender an ambiguous term, and right. then it can be right. They hijack the word, and they make it for their own usage. You can be neuter. You can be none, non-gender. You can be you can pansexual. Yeah, pansexual. And I mean, like, I don't know. I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> oh yeah! Remember when David? <laughs> he had that test. <laughs> you might want to explain that. You can go ahead and explain it now. Is that you open that up? He said you need to go in the bathroom and get in the mirror. <laughs> Take your clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, now I guess this is more political. As these ethical discussions and other social issues are featured prominently in political discourse, this raises the question of how Christians should be involved in politics. Is in this U.S. presidential election year, evangelicals express strong support for the freedom of Christians to join the debate. So the statement is Christians should be silent on issues of politics. 16% agree that they should be silent on issues of politics. Evangelicals were defined by Lifeway Research as people who strongly agreed with the following four statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that's how they define the angelical women. So you had to agree to those. those four yeah. But how can they conclude Good point. So it's one thing to say something. It's another thing when you get down into that. What's the old phrase? Devils in the details. So, so is the lostness of people. You know, it's in the details. What was that illustration that the guy uh, used this before where you had a guy who was on a 14 story ledge and he was about to commit suicide. So um, figure out, look, we got to get this guy off the ledge. So they said, look, you want uh, can we call in somebody? Somebody can maybe help him out. They say, yeah, this guy's one of those people that talk people off ledges or whatever. And so um, he goes in there, he begins to, hey man, look, you know, he starts trying to commit, you know, find some common ground, finds out that he's a Christian. Yeah, man, me too. And so he starts, gets, he gets more specific with him, you know, and says, well, well what, do you, what do you believe? He goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Baptist. Baptist? So am I, man. That's great. Look, you know, he starts kind of talking about and says, what kind of Baptist? And he goes in and kind of says, well, I'm a, you know, I believe I'm Southern Baptist. Well, me too. And that's what he starts going down the line, the whole idea of Southern Baptist and stuff. And then he goes from there. He starts talking about something specific about uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, well, you hold to that? Yeah, I don't. You might as well jump, heretic. <laughs> <laughs> And so you can see how everything's fine until you kind of get down to some of these little specifics here. Then all of a sudden, is, is that heretical? Is it worthy of condemnation? Or is it one of those, well, he's post-mill and I'm pre-mill. Oh, he believes in the deity of Jesus and I don't. See the difference? Yeah, one's going to heaven, one's going to hell. The other is, well, yeah, these are secondary and tertiary issues where if a Christian disagrees about eating meat off into an idol, he's still my brother. He's kind of weaker and I'm kind of stronger, but he's still my brother. Paul wouldn't take that view in Galatians when a guy came in and said you had to be circumcised to be a Christian. Oh, really? Call them false brethren in chapter 2, verse 4. He didn't call a weaker brother a false brother. He just said he's a weaker brother because his view toward eating meat offered to idols. If you don't know the difference between a weaker brother and a false brother, you're going to get duped by the woke theology that's coming around the corner. I'm telling you that. Why? Because the basics here on the personal work of Jesus, the basics when it comes to the standard of the Bible, the basics when it comes to justification by faith, you're not locked down. Because in those details, it's going to be those details that's going to stand the test of the hurricane winds of the woke theology. 
and they're going to test you. They're going to, they'll come with all of the flowery, flowery, you know, language of Christianity. But when you start asking for definitions and you start getting into the warp and the woof of how they define things, you know, you're going to find, and we find things like this with the Gospel Coalition, where it took five years ago, I've gone to one of their conferences. I'm not going to go now because I can't trust their terminology anymore. They're going to start slipping on the terminology. You know, when you say tomato, I say tomato. But to God, it's all the same. No, it ain't. I mean, who was the guy? Um, Athanasius. He went to the council and took, what is it? Uh, Arius to task over one word when it came to the nature of Jesus Christ, of being of the same substance, same in kind, or the same in similarity of, of the actual substance. And everything boiled down to that. If you, if you got that wrong, then Jesus was the greatest creation of God, but he wasn't God. And so he knew where that was going. And he said, nope, I'm not budging on this is the hill to die on. See? Now, we might disagree on some things about the rapture or something, but that's the thing. You don't die on that hill. You die on the hill when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where you, that's, was it? Um, Pickett's charge on Gettysburg. Right. That's where you want to take your stand and say, oh, we died to the man here. We don't want this. We don't want it all. So. Anybody else? You notice it says, if you want to do a little further digging right there, it says respondents can also be identified as evangelical in the data explorer link, and it shows you their church affiliation. So if you really want to get down into the details, you can click on that link. Widespread confusion. Anybody on Zoom land with this? I got a question. Kind of working our theology, making it practical with how we interact with culture, things of this sort. And um, Exodus chapter 20. And Ezekiel chapter 18. Don't want to be long here, but kind of pull the teeth of some of this. Exodus 20, Ezekiel 18. And then lastly, I'll hit Romans 5. And given the Ten Commandments, here at verse 4, the second command, he says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now just stop and think for that for a second. I mean, we kind of know what that means. You don't make idols. Um, he says in verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. What I want to tack, deal or deal with is in verse 5, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, of, on the children. Iniquity of the fathers on the children. And he says, how long does that go? The third and fourth generations of those who hate me. <coughs> I get to Ezekiel 18. There was a proverb going around the Jews, especially those in exile. And it says in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, 
What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? In other words, I eat candy, but my kids get the cavities. Basically saying, what the father does, the son gets punished for. Verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. And he goes, he talks about it. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone, he goes through all these things. If he doesn't do these things and restores to the debtor his pledge and does not do this and does not do that, Verse 9, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, here's the converse of that. Verse 10, then he, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and, and who does any of these things to a brother. Though he himself did not do any of these things. See the separation there. That is, he even eats at the, the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife and goes on, talks about all these things he does. Verse 13, Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Verse 14, another example. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he committed. And observing does not do likewise. Oh, there's a breaking from father to son. He does not do this, doesn't need the shrine, etc., etc. He says in verse 17, he will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. Verse 18. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you will say, verse 19, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and had observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. Verse 20, it comes to the point again. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And I'm going to ask the question, how does it fit with Exodus 20, verse 5? Verse 21, but if the wicked man turns from all of his sins, now, now we've got a guy who's sinning, who deserves to die, right? But we have a wicked man now who turns from all of his sins, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices justice. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Whoa. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because he of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. And he's concerning that righteousness which he practiced is him turning from his sins. Verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. Now think about that. When a man turns from his wicked ways, God's saying here, I'm going to count him as a righteous man. Verse 24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery, which he has committed and his sin, which he has committed for them, he will die. 
verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your way, ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions, which he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away, repent, from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. But God only can give, can give that. He's telling them to do that. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Now, this chapter can be a, a, a boondoggle for a lot of us in our theology if we're not careful with it. On one hand, in Exodus 20, verse 5, he says, you make idols, I promise you to, I'm going to visit. You hate me when you make idols. He says that for those who hate me. And I'm, the sin of that is going to be visited to the third and fourth generation in your household. Now, is that a contradiction to what he's saying here in Exodus and to, in Ezekiel 18, where he says, no, I'm not going to punish the son for the sins of what the father does. If the father is sinning, the son does, the right, does something righteous. I'm not going to punish that son for the father's sin. So what does he mean in Exodus? that these people down below the father are going to have their the iniquity of the father visited to them. I could ramp this up and even go with Romans 5 with original sin, and you've got one man who sins in the garden, and every one of his sons gets visited all the way down. I mean, that's just teaching in Romans 5. How one man you, sins, all your, sin. How does your verse 3 in Verse 3? reads, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. How does yours work? Anymore. Anymore. Yeah. Anymore. In other words, that is from Exodus 20. Uh, this is just the way it's, it's been, but we have Ezekiel as a prophet and of the the kingdom of God to come, the new covenant. Uh, in other words, not anymore. This relationship is changing. Yeah, okay. So, but isn't it the nature of the sin of idolatry specifically pointed out in Exodus? One is idolatry, trading, like it says in Romans 1. They refuse to honor God as He is, as the Creator. Um, I mean, we see ramifications of that now transgenderism, homosexuality, just a smack in the face of God for how individuals hate how they were created and the fact that they don't have the liberty to be free or whatever. But it's just a, a, a rank smack, smack in the face of God. So 
I see the name, perhaps the nature of the sin. Now, those sins aren't necessarily excluded in Ezekiel, but it is specifically identified here. But God has the right to change the application of his righteousness. Because on one deals with the, the issue of idolatry again um, in Ezekiel in the next, in um, well, in chapter 20. Um, in, in chapter 20, starting in verse 7, and, and again, it's a, a past tense. It's the time of the, the covenant and um, Egypt and then coming out. And of course, that's what he's referring back to. That's what we've read in Exodus 20. This is Ezekiel 20. He says, Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abomination of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abomination of God. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then, okay, again, pointing back, then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I run for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. He goes on, wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt. He goes, he goes on to continue this, and he, he begins talking again about some of the history and what was going on in the past. But now, this relationship, as, as Rich said, the, the application, I think the application is Ezekiel being the prophet again, is, is, is pointing to the future, to the to the new covenant period, this this new relationship that that um, God's going to have. Good stuff. What do y'all think? You see, what the, let me tell you how practical this is. This is a chapter on why we don't pay reparations. Uh, My great 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 grandpa might have been a slave owner and beat slaves. That's on him. I don't have to pay for his sins. Just like one guy says, you know, you don't pick cotton anymore, and I don't own slaves anymore. And so I don't have to pay for what somebody else did. But, you know, the colors of that's also true, which is I don't get any kudos. I don't get any merits for what other people have done in a positive way. My great-great-great-grandpa might have been Jonathan Edwards, let's say. That doesn't mean that some way, shape, or form I get in, you know, to the big house, so to say, because, you know, I know some well-to-do people. that have But I don't. Is it on view? Somebody on Zoom want to share something? Oh. And here's some background. Oh. Frank or Lord. Somebody's up there. Says the Lord. Okay. Sorry. So my, my point on the reparation thing, it's very practical because people want to keep driving back to what we used to do, and you're going to have to pay for what they did. That's what I'm saying. And if that's the case, how do you combat that from a biblical perspective? With the Bible, right here in Ezekiel 18, sons don't pay for the sins that fathers committed. Now, on, while I, you, we can say that, there is another aspect that's true from Exodus 20, verse 5. And we also can see this when we use the word federal headship. Anytime a person is in a, a representative capacity with their family, with the nation, or whatever, and they do things or make decisions, it puts me in the same category with that decision that they make. Mm -hmm. President Trump decides to go to war with Iran. 
guess what everybody in this room has, has automatically done? Gone to war with Iran as an American citizen. I, I didn't choose to go to war with him, but because I'm an American citizen and he kind of, you know, as a head, federal head, being the president, he represents us in that sense, I've gone to war with Iran. But it doesn't mean, as especially in Ezekiel 18, as he lists the specific sins, because the, the proverb was that here was the father's teeth. It wasn't the father's teeth, teeth that were being set on the edge. They were eating the sour grapes. And so the children's teeth were being set on the edge. They were using this as an excuse to blame, and we see it today, blame mama and daddy for my problems. If my dad wouldn't have been a drunkard, I could have been a better person. See, it's like, sorry, that isn't going to fly here because you're making your own calls. You're, the soul that sins, he will die. Now, if you're in that boat and you find yourself, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad off and I've been blaming dad. And you know what he says here in Ezekiel 18? You need to repent. And you know what God will do? He'll count it as righteousness. Because that repenting from those ways and practicing justice and practicing these things, God's going to look at that and say, you know what? I'm going to consider you righteous you're wanting to do the right thing you're not blaming dad because it's very easy to do we got this predicament event because you know we would be back in our home in our home nation we wouldn't be over here by the river shebar if mom and dad and great grandpa and all of them hadn't done what they did we're over here because of them and so this little proverb became the fathers eat the sour grapes the fathers were the ones who sinned and here we are struggling and suffering because of what they did it's not our fault at all and so he goes in and he said let me separate this thing out and show you okay father's sin sin they're gonna get judged for son sins they're gonna get judged for their sin don't be judged for your own sins on the other hand since we know we live in a representative capacity with figures over us that make decisions that affect us that's what i think is in the exodus 20 passage mom and dad practice idolatry guess what the kids are going to learn from mom and dad as they grow up and that learning to do something that's sinful against Yahweh is, is what's being visited to the third and fourth generation well wait the kids the kids weren't practicing idolatry but they were brought up in a in, a, in an environment in an atmosphere of worshiping idols and who brought that about mom and dad mom and dad isn't going to be guilty for exactly what the kids might have practiced. They're going to be guilty for the environment they set up for the kids to practice it. They're going to be held accountable for the nursery and daycare of setting up the environment to put that kid in that situation. That's going to be what they're going to be held accountable to. But the kid, as it says in Ezekiel 18, what you think, what you say, and what you do, God's going to hold your feet to the fire for those things. And you go and say, yeah, but you know, if mom and dad and grandpa and them wouldn't have practiced idolatry, I wouldn't have been in this house in the first place. You know, that's a valid point. But you're still on the house and you don't have to practice the idolatry. You can torn. In fact, it's the very end of Exodus. I mean, Ezekiel 18, he tells them, create for yourselves new hearts. You don't have to be here. Now, we know in total depravity and bondage of the will. But the admonition is to those people not to pass the buck. Don't pass it up. To mom and dad don't pass it sideways you own it you have to own it this is your sin you practice idolatry you're practicing the idolatry why you're practicing the idolatry in the sense of total depravity yeah we can talk about that we can blame adam all day long and that's true 
But when push comes to shove, you, you are going to be held accountable for practicing the idolatry. How you got here, honestly, whether mom, dad, whatever else, you know, is secondary. You're practicing it. You need to repent. I'm going to deal with them and how they got you here later. Yes. I want to ask, like, okay, they got the, these parents that are taking children that are like seven and eight years old, and they're a little boy, and they're making them into a girl, or a little girl, and they're making them into a little boy, and they're giving them those hormones and everything. And then, when the, I mean, it's really coming out in Europe, and then when the kids get older, they don't want to be boys and girls, they want to be what they really were. So, whose fault is that? And that's the parents doing that to them? Great question. How do we answer that? Who's going to be held accountable for what? No, let's take it. The, the kid grows up. I don't know. He gets 17, 18 years old. He's got severe psychological issues. He goes out there and goes on a shooting rampage and kills 10 people, then kills himself. According to Ezekiel 18, with the Jews, that's mom and dad's fault. That's not that kid's fault. And according to Ezekiel 18, what Ezekiel is saying here is that, no, you kill people, it's on you. I agree. That's on them. That's on mom and dad. Whatever mom and dad did with their kid to do what, what they did to put him in that situation, they're going to be blamed for every single bit of doing that. But when the kid does X, Y, and Z, you can't escape what that kid's doing in X, Y, and Z. How he got there to do it, how his mind got deformed and all of this, and he got possessed with legions of demons. And all that came from what mom and dad did. Mom and dad's going to be held accountable for how that kid got there. But once that kid's there and he pulls the he's responsible for his thoughts, his words, and deeds. Now, that's anthropology from the Bible. And so this is why you have an answer for reparations. I'm not guilty for anybody who did something back in the whatever, for the Civil War or what or whatnot. And so to... And evangelicals capitulating to this, once again, kind of go back to our survey, do not have a handle of what it means dealing with original sin, original sin being here, Adam sins. Think about this. He's a federal head. And talk about a federal head. When he sinned, everybody that came from his loins comes into this world as a sinner. That's how he affected everybody here. But you know something? God isn't going to sit there on judgment day and simply judge Adam for that sin and everybody else gets a free pass because we're all going to point to Adam and say, well, I wouldn't be here if I wouldn't have been to him. You think God's going to do that on judgment day? Sorry, Adam. I mean, look, everybody seems to be pointing at you. You seem to be the bad guy in this whole thing, bro. We're just going to take you and put you in hell and everybody else gets a free pass because, you know, their teeth are set on edge because you ate that sour grape in that garden. See, it ain't going to fit. They know that won't fit on judgment day. But it ain't going to fit on judgment day because of that. And it will fit on anything else when it comes to you know other those kind of things. Hold on, because Joe had his hand up first. Yeah, we're watching a bunch of federal officers over the children, and they were talking about the bill. What is the truth about what people say about the children? The bill in California right now, the cis parents change the sex of their young children, whatever ways they need to be assisted, counseling, whatever. But if they want to decide to make their so a girl, vice versa, the state will assist them to do so in tax So it's not necessarily just in Europe. Now, I have a niece, and I said, a man, or if I can call her, and anyway, one little girl was about six years old, and I was hoping to her, because they knew so the way I sat down. She let the girl, so that's more like a boy. Six years old, 
This is Gonzales area. This here. She'll be held accountable for those actions. That's a sign of the time. She will be a sharer in all of that sin that will come forth from that child growing up. That child's going to be held accountable for her. Her actions. Yeah. Yeah. Moses, you rules the tribal when you choose that path. Yeah. So. Moses gets even more specific in Deuteronomy 24 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. He gets very succinct. And of course, as you alluded to, neither that passage nor in Ezekiel is contradictory or a change from what happened in Exodus 20. Because you're talking in a more general sense in Exodus 20 as to the fact that they the children will feel the impact of the parents' sin. Right. And that's what Exodus 20 is all. What was that, Deuteronomy 1? Deuteronomy 24, 16. You have a point? Yeah. Okay, now, we, now we're living in a society that glorifies all this perfection and so on. And so the people that are being Educated to believe that it's the right thing to do to find your true identity, and the government uh, allows it and makes laws that it's okay to do this. But where does that all come down? Well, it comes down to the law of God is written on every man's heart. Everybody knows what's wrong with that, and everybody's responsible. It doesn't matter what the government does or what laws are implemented or what psychological things are taught in college or what liberal professors do to, to just warp the minds. Everybody's still responsible for their own actions and their own sins. And that's what's going to happen. If a six-year-old or a 12-year-old is given that opportunity and nobody tells them that you can't. And like he said, the parents are responsible for their part in that. But as that person gets of age and grows up, they're responsible. So they're at the age of accountability. Stay tuned for next week. Is there an of accountability? Part two, age of accountability. It's possible to go to prayer. Quickly go to prayer. Amen. <laughs> uh, last, uh, last Charlie Horse for your brain, okay? Uh, somebody give you some commentary on why Aiken and his entire family perished if the sons and daughters aren't going to be punished for the sins of the father. Aiken stole the gold, hides it in the tent. And what does it say in Joshua 7? It says, and they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen. They got a part of it, right? His donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. What does it say? Them. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones 
that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Explain that. Seems to imply that um, you know Achan had this, and it was in his tent. I mean, they they went and saw it. They found it. Well, that would imply, at least it seems, complicit that the family knew it. The family saw it. They didn't report it. They didn't throw it out. They didn't throw him out. They just kind of like hoped that maybe nobody will see him. We'll be able to keep this baby. Uh, yeah. 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 So. Good point. I tend to think that too. It, you got to remember something. Jericho was a unique city in its destruction. God gave specific orders to everyone in Israel that everything was under the ban. That entire city was a burnt offering unto the Lord. If you know anything about burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter one, that entire offering was to be consumed. Nobody gets any part of that animal. Because it's general, you could sacrifice and sometimes the Levites would get part of it, kind of a big barbecue, they could get some of it to eat, or you get can share it sometimes if it's a peace offering. But that was a burnt offering, and it was totally unto the Lord, that, and everything in that, in that uh, city. So when Achan stole that wedge of gold, he basically changed allegiances and called himself a Jerichoite. Because everything he, he, when he took that, he aligned himself against the Lord. And then you bring that in your tent, and then your family, like Tom says, under, knows these things. And it wasn't just the, the, the gold bar. I think he had to get a robe from Babylon or something. There were some other things which... Got something for the business here, you know? <laughs> you know, she needs some kind of nice, you know, satin this, whatever from that on. And you don't act like the Lord's people when that happens. You should separate yourself from your own husband, your kids, whatever else who might be aligning with that. Then you fall underneath that same judgment. Because notice, the animals were destroyed. Everything he owned was considered, he was a Jerichoite, which means everything that had, anything that associated with him was destroyed even though donkeys don't steal wedges of gold and things of this sort but it wasn't just across the board god slaughtering all of his kids as well i tend to think with the ezekiel 18 passage as well there has to be some complicity in that that the family knew animals don't know but animals property people are property and so there has to be some responsibility that they had to bear with that um i mean especially when they're going through and they cast and lost to figure out who did this and this? Nobody comes forward. I mean, nobody from his family comes and says, I mean, daddy did it. <laughs> I mean, which would have kind of saved us a lot of time with all the casting of lots. Nobody does that. You know, after a while, you begin to realize, okay, this is what's going on with the complicity. And that's one of those markers. That's one of those markers of specificity in scripture that that God wants to make sure we understand his holiness, like Ananias and Sapphira. Every single time somebody did something like Ananias and Sapphira, God didn't strike them down. But that day they did, and for all church history we know now, just to demonstrate uh, the holiness of God. Boy, he could get real specific in the Old Testament, right? But it's, you know, good time. Is that like any other time, um, Philistines, whatever, if a whole nation... Uh, their leadership is following against the laws of God. When they go in and destroy a nation, a Philistine nation, they've destroyed women and children too. Correct. A lot of argument, in, you know, for those that don't know the Word of God says 
that's not fair for God. Why, what kind of God is that that would destroy right. these little children, these Philistine children? Yeah. They're not kind of the same principle that, look, God's right. holy or headship type of thing as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The Amalekites were underneath the band. Yeah. And so it, it, when Samuel tells Saul to do what in 1 Samuel 15? Here's your first test as king. God wants you to go out there and slaughter them all. Don't leave anything alive. Animals, everything gets the, the blade. You got it? He goes in there and kills them all except the king so he can bring him back and kind of parade him around. And then he keeps the animals so they can sacrifice them to the Lord. And you know what he gets for that? Kind of rebuke he gets? He loses his kingship. Now, you, somebody, somebody would say, wait a minute. He loses his kingship because he didn't commit genocide? Exactly right. See, you think cancel culture today? Cancel culture is way back in the Old Testament. We're going to cancel the Amorites. We're going to cancel the Amalekites. And if God says, I'm going to cancel them, you wouldn't have a problem if he sent an angel to cancel them. But when he sends fellow human beings to go out there as another nation to go cancel them, well, that's just wrong. It's not wrong. All these people. All, all of us should be canceled. You get right. But yeah, he goes in and canceled. says, nope, I'm going to cancel this culture. And, and those little Philistines would have only grown up to store up more wrath on themselves. Saul got killed by a Malachite. He didn't kill them all? That's what happens, you see. I want to ask a follow-up question to uh, the verses that you were bringing up. Yep. And actually there's 20 about the sins following after, you know, third generation or whatever. <clears throat> um, it's not, I, I agree with the main point, being responsible for your own sins, but influences count, you know. Right. Um, with that in mind, I, I've heard counselors use this scripture to say that, uh, you know, there's specific demons that yep. follow yep. the trail of certain sins. Sure. Uh, is there, you know, you see validity and chains need to be broken, as they say. Yep. Ancestral demons. Ancestral sure. demons. Yep. Well, you pick, you pick them up. That's exactly right. I've seen that in counseling sessions too. You know. Especially, I remember Conrad, when you had people who were in the, um, became Christians and they were um, from like an Indian background. Not India, but Indian. With this, you know, Navajo, this and worshiping the wind gods and all this. You had, you know, mom and dad used to do this. And then they wonder why the kid all of a sudden has demon problems. Well, they came from mom and dad. Now, did the, did the kid do something to get them? Probably not. The demons know how to handle with mom and dad. And so they just got passed on. They, the kids were around mom and dad all the time. So the demons began to plague them as well. And then they picked them up. And then they have to get cast out. But, but you have to be very careful when you get into that area. Because there are some extremely unbiblical teachings that's true. about how to deal with that. That's true. Oh, yeah. You get into a whole thing about these, you're the demon fighter. And you got to say these words. And you can... Bind Satan and send him to the pit. Let me tell you, you ain't sending Satan nowhere. No matter what word you say. I'm messing for me enough. I mean, come on, man. Right. You know, you got to be very careful with, with, with all that. And it, the thing is, I always say, you know, we have to have balance when it comes to that area. What, one of the things in in the reform world, we we tend to we, we we're so scared of leaning towards into the charismania. That we just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to think about it. Well, we have to think on the one hand, we have to realize that demons are real. That's an absolute thing. But on the other hand, we can't be, you know, the demon of parking spots that we got to rebuke when we don't get our spot at Walmart. We can't go that nutcase on it either. We have to maintain a good 
biblical balance when it comes to that. My favorite preacher said, here, here, here. Even, even everywhere. Yeah, we can't be. <laughs> You can't be like that. And then what ends up happening is you wind up blaming the demons for your sin. And that's what happens in the fathers. I feel like the devil, though, is extremely busy right now. Yeah, he's always busy. So this kind of gives you some help with our cultural issues, with reparations, cancel culture. You can see how the biblical perspective, once you have the basic tenets in hand, original sin, how what does get passed from mom and dad, and what doesn't get passed from mom and dad? Uh, Tom goes and robs a bank, and then all of a sudden, Jason, his son, a month later, comes down with cancer. And someone says, well, you know why he's got cancer, huh? Well, there you go. He robbed the bank. And try to make a connection between father and son. That's exactly what Ezekiel 18 is rebuking. Saying, no, there's no connection between those two. It's different. Yeah, but that's the father and that's the son. So what? Well, there's got to be some sort of, you know, because he did something wrong, somebody else is going to feel the effect. No. Not like that. Now, when Jason was little, if he practiced idolatry the whole time, there'd be that kind of effect, but not because there's some sort of line drawn because whatever he's doing now is going to affect his kids in a whole different way. Yes. Um, and then we'll close the prayer. I was thinking about um, the man born blind. Right. See? And um, people sin? were asking, what, was he blind because of the sin? Right. See? So and the Jews were all up into that. Yeah. If they'd have read Ezekiel 18, <laughs> once again. But then but then there might have been some truth to that if there was, I don't know, mom and dad put some drops in his eyes or something thinking that he was done, and then they blinded him. Well, in that sense, maybe there was some you know cause and effect there. But simply because he was born blind doesn't mean that mom and dad, you know, did something wrong. This was this was a stigma that was attached to many, many Israelite women who could not conceive. Because, I mean, yeah. for example, uh, this was the whole thing on how Samuel came about with Hannah. Um, because there is um, a passage, I think it's in um, one of the sexual sins. I think it's in, um, the list is in Leviticus 18, but the punishment's in Leviticus 20. One of the punishments is that they will be childless. Well, you can imagine when someone's childless, and it's like, you know, you did this, or you uncovered the nakedness of this, and they will be born child. Oh, okay, now whose nakedness did you uncover? Go ahead and confess it because you're, you know, you're childless. It's like, I didn't cover anybody. Yeah, well, look what the text says. Text says you'd be born, or you, you wouldn't have kids, and you're not having kids. You're keeping something from us, and it's very easy to try to tie a, you know, a point between point A and point B with that. And that's never what the, what the text was meant for as a punishment. Yet they would all, this is what the whole point was with this guy's born blind. Mom and dad did something wrong. Didn't go to church enough. Didn't go to Sunday school enough. Didn't read. What did they do wrong? Why was this guy born blind? So they're trying to find a cause to it when in reality, and of course, this was the whole problem with Job's comforters, trying to find a cause to all of his sins and problems. And um, God had to rebuke him. And you just can't do that with everything that's done. You know, God didn't bring judgment on the yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, you know, that, you know, you just can't draw a straight line and just say, well, because of this, God's doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, the text says it, then, yeah, you, you preach it, but you got to be careful with that. So. But also, the time you get into the first century, Judaism has become so corrupt that they had all that kind of responsibility. Yeah, is that you, Frank? It is, yeah. Look, we can hear you now. Um, you know, I mean, even today, we, um, 
inherit, we, we sort of teach our children how to sin. You know, even as Christians, I mean, there's certain sins that I've committed that my children pick up on. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I handle uh, certain circumstances and the way I react and the way I do this or the way I do that. I mean, you can tell in the difference. My, my wife was raised in a, uh, a family that is where their reformed theology goes back many generations. And she brought a lot more sanctification to the marriage than I did. Um, you know, I'd only been saved short while few years and you know the thing is is that we we pick up these bad habits and and, and these sinful actions and these sinful thought patterns from our parents and right. in that way we continue to practice uh wrong things and and we do receive the consequences of those sins it may not be eternal damnation right. but we do suffer things like uh you know just uh broken relationships, uh, poverty, uh, just, you know, disease. Uh, there's, there's certain things that we suffer because of our, our, the sin that we picked up from our parents or even the people around us, you know, the people that we hang out with and we pick up bad uh, sinful thoughts and ideas and habits and uh, we continue to practice them and, and they get passed on. And so, you know, that is just one way that, that, um, this type of thing can can um, be, uh, I, I guess, uh, manifest today in the New Testament. Doesn't necessarily mean a person's going to go to hell, um, but it may be some sin that they struggle with, you know, throughout their lifetime. Good point. And I'll end with this. This is also uh, here's a father. He's been an alcoholic all of his life, and he's got a son who is developing a drinking problem and he's become an alcoholic father gets converted to Christ gives up all of his sinful ways God delivers him from alcoholism he's not a drunkard anymore God doesn't owe his son the same thing his son still is an alcoholic his father has to look upon this is the effects of my sinning and it's affected my son and he's picked up on my ways I can pray for him, but he's going to be, my son's going to be held accountable for his drinking. My, my son can't turn around and say, well, if you wouldn't have drank, I wouldn't be an alcoholic. Well, you're right in one sense. If I wouldn't have drank, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have had my influence around you to drink. Maybe somebody else should have gotten around and caused you to drink. I don't know. But you're right. I played a part in influencing you. But God has forgiven me for all those things. And trying to reassure fathers who have that kind of, who had a negative influence on their families that God has forgiven you and you pray for your children and you see them doing things that you know they learned from you when you were a heathen and yet they're still doing their heathen thing that Lord help me to not because you can a father can beat themselves up mercilessly realizing that gosh you know he wouldn't be in this situation if I hadn't well that's true but that's going to be true on almost anything your kids are going to develop patterns from you I mean just because you I mean you You've seen this, this, this story where the kid tries to walk in dad's shoes, the big shoes. That's just how it's going to be. And they're going to pick up on your faults. And so we're, we have to be very, very careful on what we pass down, especially idolatry here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And what we look to for security, what we look to for, for, for provision, because our kids are going to pick up on that. I mean, sure, as 
we're here. If you go out there and all dad does is he works five jobs and everything. The only thing that was important to dad was money. Never had time for church. And they grow up and all they do is go off to try to get rich and never have time for church. What's that song? Cats in the Cradle in the Silverstone. Sure would love to come spend time with you, dad, right? Because dad didn't have time when he was, you know, younger. And now the son, when dad wants the son to come back, now he ain't got time to come see dad. Even the seculars can see that and they put it, put it in a song. So anyway, when, when, but when God forgives, you have to take that monkey off your back and realize, okay, you're right. I mean, he's, he's been affected by my, my ways in the past, but God has forgiven me. Accept that forgiveness, and God can forgive my son. So, but I've, seen some, I've seen some people really. I mean, it, it affects them when they see their kids and the and the negative their their kids has become, and they they hate themselves for look what I've done as a parent, a horrible parent. You are righteous in the sight of God. Now you've given up your evil ways. Why didn't God save me sooner? That was on God. His His sovereignty. At the same time, this is, I mean, look, you, you heard, you repented. You have to trust the Lord. The Lord knows what he's going to do with your children. Even though they're in a wayward kind of state right now, you need to trust him. Because they, they learn some of those habits from you. But at the same time, God isn't going to sit here and just try to beat you up and say, you should feel bad for the rest of your life. I mean, that's the devil's job. He's always the accuser of the brethren. So. Amen. The gospel so great. That's what makes the gospel so great. Well, let's pray. I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that our teeth aren't set on edge because of what somebody else does. But at the same time, Father, we are mindful in the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done. Wow. You freely give us a righteousness that's not our own. And it's because of that federal headship relationship that we can be included and be counted as righteous. And it parallels what Father Adam did in causing all of us to be unrighteous in your sight. We're, we're asking, Father, that you would help us in our decision-making, that, Father, we would not pass our responsibility off to somebody else, especially our irresponsibility. And at the same time, Lord, as we look to you and whatever those influences that may have a detrimental effect in our lives, demons, the world, propensities, whatever, addictions the world might call, whatever they might be that we've picked up and we have made our own, that, Father, that you would help us to fight through those things and that you would cause us to see your great grace and mercies to be able to overcome those things not put the blame of our problems on anyone else, but squarely on ourselves. And at the same time, Father, knowing that you have caused us to be righteous in your sight and that our sins are forgiven and that we have victory over all these evil influences that have accrued to us from other people, close to us and distant, that, Father, you and you alone are chief and commander of our sanctification and you will see it through. For it's in Christ's great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys, on Zoom land. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you all. Thank you, Mark. You got it. We went over, guys. Sorry. Thanks, Mark. See you later. No.